Well, good evening, everyone. It's great uh, to welcome you to our service this evening. Um, particularly warm welcome if you're visiting or we're here with family. It's lovely to have you with us, and um, we're looking forward to this service together. So the theme of the service tonight, as we continue in our series in the book of 1 Samuel, is um, where does my help come from? I don't know how you'd answer that question. Uh, where does your help come from? But we're going to be thinking about what it means to really depend on God as Christian believers. So uh, we're looking forward to Simon preaching to us a little later on from the next chapter in uh, 1 Samuel 23. As we begin, I thought I'd read from um, Psalm 121, where that little phrase, uh, where does my help come from, um, appears in the Bible. And there's a song that we're going to sing later in our service that picks up some of those words. But as we gather this evening, um, let me just read uh, this lovely psalm. And perhaps uh, I'll just leave a little bit of space in between each of the sentences for you to reflect on what the psalmist is saying. Psalm 121. The writer says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He will watch over you and he does not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm he will watch over your life the Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore shall we pray together as we start our service Father reading these words of one of the Israelites journeying up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple all those years ago and asking himself asking herself that question Where does my help come from? Lord, we confess that the answer in our own lives to that question would so often be not you. It's so easy to be self-reliant. It's so easy to trust in money or material possessions. It's so much easier to turn to worry or to complaining about our life situation rather than turning far more quickly to you in prayer. So we do ask for your forgiveness for this. And as we gather together tonight to hear your word explained to us, to sing your praises, help us to reflect on what it means to be people who truly do depend on you. Father, we want to be people who leave this church this evening. And as we ask ourselves that question, where does our help come from? Please help us to be able to say our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So, Father, bless us tonight. Bless the preaching of your word into each of our hearts. And thank you for the freedom we have to meet as your people tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The reading tonight is from 1 Samuel, chapter 23, verses 1 to 29. In the Church Bibles, that's on page 295. When David was told, Look, 
The Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors. He inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by battering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, Tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will. Again, David asked, Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, They will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and, and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hekilah, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. 
Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began to search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David, a raid and to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hummalekoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. There's lots of strange place names in that, and I think I say them a bit differently, so forgive me. Shall we pray before we come to God's word? Lord, thank you for scripture. Thank you for the truthfulness in it, Lord. Thank you that we can trust it. And Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you uh, can take my words, you can take this scripture, and you can touch our hearts and minds. And that's what I pray tonight, Lord, that you will, you will encourage people tonight. We all want to get our strength from you, Lord. And we pray now that you will encourage each one of us, uh, whatever we need encouraging in, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Take these words of mine and make them yours. Thank you, Lord. Amen. On March the 15th, 2003, I'd been working in the garden on a lovely sunny day, and I got a really horrible phone call. Um, It was from a friend at work, and he told me that my boss had been killed in a motorbike accident, uh, aged 50. Uh, now, Andy was not just for my boss. He was uh, the man who'd led me to Christ uh, seven years before. And he was also my friend. He was godfather to Amy. Uh, and he was the owner of the very small consultancy business that we worked at. So obviously I got this phone call and my reactions, of course, were shock and grief. But very quickly, I I had another emotion creep in, and that was one of fear and uncertainty, because I suddenly realized that uh, my livelihood was at risk, because I thought that the business would fail without this very, very important member of staff. And actually, then I realized that the only way that it would survive, and therefore my job would survive, would be if I dived in and took the business on. And I had no clue whether I would be able to run a business or not. So there was this grief and shock, but also a huge sense of fear. So we called my pastor, and uh, Eddie came out to pray with Claire and I. And he said something very wise. He, he He reminded me that whether the business failed or succeeded, if I was to make a go of the business, the Lord would be with me in that. 
But if the business was to fail, which was what my fear was, then he just reminded me that the Lord would have an alternative plan for my life. And actually that alternative pathway, God would be walking with me anyway. So just to be reminded and rooted that whatever the outcome in that crisis, actually God was with me, gave me a huge sense of comfort. Uh, Now over the next seriously days, weeks and months, uh, you can imagine the kind of things I had to deal with. I was seriously chucked in at the deep end of running a business. Uh, I had to communicate Andy's death to staff and to uh, clients. I had to reallocate projects. I had to deal with the family and lawyers and shareholder agreements. I had to speak at the funeral. uh, And then I met with the uh, accountants. And in my first week, the accountants told me we were closing year-end and the company had made a loss of £110,000. I was also told that we needed to find £50,000 just to stay solvent for the next month. And then the bank manager withdrew our overdraft facility when they heard of Andy's death. So you can imagine, in a human terms, I was chucked in at the deep end and I was drowning. Every day I drove to work, I would weep in my weakness. But I know that I had probably a couple of hundred Christians praying for us. Several churches knew of the problem. And I know that I had lots of people praying. And I might have wept as I drove to work, but as I crossed the threshold, I just know the result of all of that prayer was God's supernatural strength. He gave me the strength to cope with each day. He also gave me a supernatural wisdom to make very, very difficult decisions each day. And that was probably the time in my life where I have felt at my weakest. And in my weakness, God was supremely strong. And I think it was in my weakness and desperation, I allowed God to be my strength. Now, if I jump forwards five or ten years... By then, I had a significantly successful global business. It was financially really strong. We had lots of clients, lots of good reputation, and life seemed to be a lot better. But weirdly, during the good years, I felt the burden of running the business. I felt the stress of it. I felt much more weighed down by it. And I realized what had happened, that in the crisis years, I became weak and fully dependent on God. But when life got good, it's a very easy tendency, isn't it, to then say, we're being successful. Look how clever we are. And there's a tendency for a little bit of self, doing things in self-strength. And tonight, we're asking this question about where does my help come from? And we're doing it through 1 Samuel 23 that, that, uh, that you just heard. And really, the book of Samuel is really a story, isn't it, about two kings. We have the first king of Israel, King Saul. And he was the archetypal, self-reliant, do-it-in-my-own-strength kind of guy. And then we have King David, the totally God-dependent one. Now, just before we get into the detail of chapter 23, there are a few people here who have not been with us for the whole of the Samuel series we've been doing over the last month. So let's just recap on the book of Samuel. 
The early stages are about the nation of Israel being led by the man of God, Samuel, the rising up of Samuel, the last of the judges. But by the time we get to chapter 8, which is where we started this series, Israel is saying, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. They forget that they've been led directly by God. And so in God's grace, and I suspect uh, in, in God maybe wanting to teach the Israelites a bit of a lesson, God in his grace raises up, raises up and anoints King Saul. Now, King Saul, on the face of it, the Bible tells us he was a foot taller than anyone else in the nation of Israel. He was a good-looking, hunky, warrior king. If you were asking for a king as a nation, isn't that exactly the kind of guy that you'd want? Somebody who's strong and tough. But unfortunately, as we, look, as we go through the chapters 10 to 15, we see the flaws of Saul start to creep in. Initially, he just shows a little bit of disobedience. He doesn't fully implement uh, God's instructions. But bit by bit, power goes to his head, and he starts doing more and more in his own strength. Eventually, we get to this point where he's defeated his enemy, and then he puts up a monument on top of Mount Carmel in his own honor. Instead of giving glory to God, he put a monument up to himself. And actually, right towards the end, in his madness, he actually killed the high priest and his family because he didn't like what he was being told. So the turning point really is in chapter 15, verse 26, God rejects Saul. And Samuel goes to Saul and he says, you've rejected the word of the Lord, and so the Lord has rejected you as king. And so from chapter 16 onwards, we saw the rise of David. David, actually, if we were to give him a tag at the beginning, David the insignificant. If you remember, he was the kid looking after the, uh, to the, the, the sheep. Um, he was out there on the fields as they looked at the other sons of Jesse. But eventually God says, there is the youngest. Rise and anoint him because he's the one. So on the surface, he was just the, the youngest, insignificant one. But what was his strength? The Lord saw his heart. He was God-dependent, God-reliant. And that's the strength that he was the one, as we heard two weeks ago, that defeated Goliath. When everyone else, King Saul and his army, were afraid to confront this giant, what does David do? In God's strength and in trusting in God, he's the one that stepped forwards. So we get to our story now. We're at the point where David is on the run from Saul. He's been on the run. Saul has been getting increasingly jealous of David, jealous of his favor with the people, jealous of his favor with God. And so he's decided he wants to kill, and he's been out chasing him through the desert land. And this is sort of the heart of this story. But we start in verse 1. Uh, with the Philistines attacking this town. I call it Keeler. I hope that's all right. Um, but the Philistines occupied the coastal areas, and they were working their way inland whilst David was in Judah, and Keeler was in the middle. And they hear this news in verse 1 that the, the, the Philistines are, you can just imagine the scene, can't you, this fortress town. And 
This army is ransacking. They'll be raping, pillaging, destroying. And it says here they're looting the threshing floors. Now, if Saul had been on the outskirts and heard that news, what would Saul have done? Saul would have done one of two things. He would have either rushed in with his army to defend the town, or, a bit like he did with Goliath, he would have hung back if he thought the enemy was a little bit too strong. That's because he did things in his own strength. Now let's contrast that with David's approach. Look at verse 2, really. What's the first thing that David did? He, I love this phrase, he inquired of the Lord. And he said, shall I go and attack these Philistines? He's a guy who wants to consult the Lord before he actually acts. David, the God-dependent one. His strength is the Lord. And he wants to come before God and say, what is your will before I make a decision? Now, what I love in these first two, three verses is fantastic godly leadership. If you're in leadership, whether it's business or politics or the church, what happens is you make a decision and then you will always hear the, the critics, the doubters, people's fears. And what happens here is David inquires of the Lord and the Lord says, yes, go and attack Keilah. But David's men say to him, well, we're frightened. We're frightened whilst we're here in Judah. So let alone if we have to go and attack this fortress town in the backyard of our enemy. So he's hearing these fears, and he would have picked up on a little bit of that fear. And so what does he do? He goes back in verse 4, and he inquires again of the Lord. We see this double inquiry. Lord, are you sure that I should go and attack the town of Keilah? And of course God says, yes, I'm going to give the Philistines into your hands. And I think it's a great model for us, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with going back to God, backwards and forwards sometimes, just to be certain about what is the will of God in your life. So I I love that model of uh, godly leadership. So, of course, what does David do? He inquires of the Lord twice. Now he knows the will of God. He trusts what God has said. God has said, I will deliver them into your hands. So there's a simple consequence of that. What is he going to do? He obeys. He goes and attacks the town, and of course he defeats the Philistines. So the consequence of of David's trusting and obeying is that he's blessed and the people are saved. Now there's a strange, what looks like a kind of throwaway line in verse 6. It kind of says in brackets, Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to, to David at Keilah. Now what's that saying? The ephod... Uh, most people think is like a priestly garment and it had a couple of pockets in it and they kept this thing called the umin and the thumin in it and they were used for casting of lots but basically the ephod is associated with inquiring of the Lord some people thought it was a kind of image of God before which you cast lots but what it's telling us is that the ephod and now the high priest has fled from Saul and is with David so it's, it's David who has the ability to consult with God. And that makes the next uh, verse all the more ironic because Saul in verse 7, he says, David has, he, basically people of Keilah betray the very person who saved them. So David 
Saul says, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Saul just assumes in his delusion that God is with him, despite the fact Samuel had very clearly told Saul that God was removing the kingship and giving it to somebody more worthy. So Saul's approach is to think, well, God's on my side. I'm going to go and capture David and kill him. I'll get him whilst he's trapped in Keilah. Look again at the very different approach that David has. What does David do? David's heard this rumor that the people of Keilah he's just saved are going to betray him to Saul. And Saul and his armies are on the way to, to get him. What does David do? Again, twice, he inquires of the Lord. He says, Get the high priest, bring the ephod. And then David says, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. He's inquiring of the Lord. And of course, God says, yes, they're going to get, they will. And again, in verse 12, he asks again, are, are you sure the people of Keilah are going to betray me? So I lo- that, that's one thing we can see twice in this passage. David is repeatedly coming before God to determine the will of God before he acts. Very different approach from King Saul, who kind of rushes in in his own strength. And so we now get to this kind of second part of the story, which is having heard from God, now David flees. He flees into the desert of Ziph. Now, can you imagine what David is feeling at this point? He has, he has just lost a few men. He's risked life and limb to save a town from the Philistines, and they've betrayed him. He's now rushed away because his father-in-law is trying to kill him. Instead, the father-in-law should be giving him accolades for defeating the enemy. And now he's rushing around the desert, running away, living rough. I think David will be at a really low ebb, feeling miserable. And actually, have a read of some of the Psalms, particularly if you want to later, read Psalm 54. David wrote Psalm 54 when he was in the desert of Ziph. And uh, you can hear the angst as he realizes his enemies are chasing him and he's surrounded by his enemies. So just at his low ebb, what does God do? God sends David, an encourager. God sends his best friend, Jonathan, Saul's son. And the Bible tells us here in verse 16, I think it is, Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. Just at this point where David's probably feeling a bit vulnerable, Jonathan helps David to find strength in God. Now, how does Jonathan help David? And I think the clue to that is in verse 17. Jonathan just reminds David of a promise of God. He says in verse 17, Don't be afraid. My father, Saul, will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father, Saul, knows this. Samuel has told Saul earlier that the kingship is being removed from Saul. 
And God has also told David that he's raising him up as king. If God is on David's side, how on earth can Saul win? And so all Jonathan is doing is reminding David in his hour of need what God has promised. God is raising you up as king, so Saul is not going to capture you. And so the rest of this story, which I'm not going to go into too much detail on, is really about this chase. It's about more betrayal. So whilst David is in the desert of Ziph, actually the people of the desert of Ziph, the Ziphites, they betray David again. And so Saul brings his armies out, and they get really close. They get so close that the end of the chapter talks about uh, Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. And yet, just as it looks like it's all ending, just as it looks like Saul is going to capture David, God intervenes. The Philistines are attacking, and so Saul has to pull off his uh, chase and go and defeat the enemy, and so David escapes. So this this story is really a, a summary, really, of two two kings. The self-reliant King Saul versus the God-dependent King David. We've seen Saul's weakness was that he trusted in his own strength. Whereas God, David's strength was that he just trusted God. Before David made decisions, what did he do? He inquired of the Lord. And when he wasn't sure of what the Lord's will was, he inquired again. Are you sure, Lord? And of course we see that King Saul, throughout, throughout this book, King Saul is consistently disobedient. And actually, in chasing David round the wilderness, what is he doing? He's actually trying to defeat the will of God. It's the will of God that David is to be king. And Saul is desperately trying to cling on to power, desperately trying to kill David, his competitor. And yet, he's trying to defeat the will of God. And we all know that that is an impossibility. And so because of his disobedience, we see Saul was judged by God, whereas the obedient, trusting King David was blessed by God in what he did. So I reckon we can get to the application here. It seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Doesn't God want us to be like David and not like Saul? Doesn't God want us to trust him, to obey him, And therefore, as a consequence, when we do those things, be blessed by him. But I think that's probably a little bit too simplistic. I told that story about Abacus. Isn't it the truth that we're somewhere, not not on either extreme, but aren't we in different times of our lives, maybe with different issues in our lives? Are we not somewhere on this spectrum between being self-reliant and God-dependent? You know, in the crisis years of Abacus, I was just utterly on my knees. I was, in a human sense, utterly weak. My prayer life was desperate. I was weeping as I went into work. And in that weakness, God was able to be strong. But then this problem occurs when you suddenly start finding life a little bit easier. 
then suddenly you start doing things in your own strength. And I must admit, there are times in my life where I'm finding things stressful and anxious. It's a bit ironic. When I was preparing this presentation, I was going round and round and round in circles and feeling panicky about it. And God kind of just reminded me that I was trying to do this in my own strength. And we just need to trust him and do things in his strength. So I ask the question tonight, what aspects of your life are you trying to do something in your own life? Is there something that's feeling like a great burden? Because all I know is that when I'm feeling a great burden, I usually look at myself and think, am I doing this in my own strength? And usually the answer is yes. And the solution is to pray and to ask for God's strength. So what areas of your life are you struggling with? Is there something at work that feels like a huge burden to you? Are you trying to do it in your own strength? Is there a change in your life that you're going through? Maybe you're retired or you're thinking about going to university. Maybe there's a job change that is leading to uncertainty and fear. Are you trying to struggle in your own strength? Are you worrying about your health or somebody else's health? There's all sorts of relationship issues. There's all sorts of areas, isn't there, in our lives that we could be anxious and stressed and worried. And I think what the Lord wants us to just do is lift those things to him and say, Lord, help me. I want to do it in your strength, not mine. I want to finish with just one slide. And it's going back to the model of, of David. When you read the Psalms, you, you do hear David um, cry out his problems. And I think psychologically it's so easy for us to focus on our problems. And even when we pray, sometimes our prayers are so focused on the problems that as we go round and round those problems, they get bigger and bigger. But when you look at David's Psalms, he he acknowledges the problem, but very quickly he goes to focusing on God, doesn't he? And you read so much around, Lord, you are my rock, you are my fortress, you are my refuge. So much about, Lord, you made them, you made the stars, you made the mountains. He, he acknowledges how big his God is. He has such a vast view of how big God is. He knows that God is greater than his problems. And so instead of dwelling on the problem, he actually dwells on the might and, uh, of God, the wonder of God. And then he looks at and is reminded of the trust, that the, that the promises that God has made, and he trusts them. So the story we looked at was about King David defeating or being, not being defeated by Saul. We have so many promises. We have an ultimate promise, which is what Jesus did on the cross, and, and actually death is defeated for us. So even the thing that we could fear the most, being death, we have a promise that that is defeated. And so... I think we should model ourselves on David and remind ourselves, how big is he? And I, I love this reading in Philippians uh, 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, by petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding 
will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The process for us is to be reminded of how big our God is, to be reminded of the promises of God, to trust in those, and then the result of doing that is peace. And I want us to close with this little exercise. There's some sheets scattered around. And what I've done is I've just picked out a few promises of God. Somebody, um, somebody told me, I want to, I don't know, we, I don't think we do this very much, but the spiritual discipline of meditating on the Word of God, it's something I love doing. If I sit up on a mountain somewhere and I take a piece of scripture and I just pray quietly through that scripture. Now David had a high priest, an ephod, and the casting of lots to, to inquire of the Lord. We, post-Pentecost, post the cross, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit who can speak into our hearts and minds. He can take scripture and he can take the deep truths of that scripture and deeply speak into the issues in our lives. And so what I want us to do is learn from David, which is to put aside our problems because the more we worry round and round and round thinking about the thing that's our worry... Actually, the process of meditation is the same process, except instead of going round and round and having sleepless nights over the worry issue, we put that to one side and we focus on God. We focus on the promises of his word, and then we go round and round that as we pray through it, asking for the Holy Spirit to encourage us and to build us up. And that's what I want us to do just for five minutes. I'll I'll pray now. And let's pray quietly, individually. Pick one of these, one of these promises and allow the Lord to use that to encourage you and speak into your hearts. But I would also encourage you in the week, find 30 minutes, hey, find 60 minutes and be quiet before God and just meditate on the promises of His Word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reliability of your word thank you father holy spirit that you are the counselor and that you know every problem that we have and that you care about each one of us lord you know all the different circumstances that cause us anxiety and stress and i just pray lord that you will teach us how to just come before you on bended knee Teach us to be like David, where we can just come before you to put aside the things we're focusing on that worry us and to just be reminded, Lord, about how wonderful and glorious and how big a God you are, that you're so big, Lord, that you're you're above all of our problems. So teach us, Lord, to focus on you. And as we pray now, Lord, I just pray that people will leave this place with a deep truth, And an encouragement, Lord, settling in their hearts and minds. And as we pray through scripture, Lord, I pray that the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's just be quiet for five minutes and just pray through one of of these pieces of scripture each. I'd like to end our service where we began thinking about um, Psalm 121, the words of which we sang in that previous song. 
I was just thinking as we were singing, the theme of the song was all about the storm, wasn't it? And I guess our natural tendency in a storm would be to cling on tight. And there's going to be a natural tendency this week with all the challenges that you may face or as you seek to support others who are struggling to cling on in our own strength. Um, so I'm going to pray just those two verses from Psalm 121. And if it helps you, perhaps just put your hands like this, which is a, a kind of just a position of submission. It's a way of symbolically saying, God, I want you to be in control. Just if it helps you, you could do that. And I'll read these verses as we close. Heavenly Father, we read in this psalm that you call us to lift our eyes to the hill and to ask ourselves the question, where does my help come from? Father, forgive us where our help is not found in you. Forgive us for the ways this week we will be self-reliant. But please, by the power of your spirit, would you teach us what it means to be fully dependent on you? Thank you that our strength, our wisdom doesn't need to be found from within, but comes from you. Where does my help come from? Lord, teach us to be a people whose help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Father, we give you the problems of this week and we take that promise that we were looking at on that sheet earlier and we pray now that you would embed that promise deep within our hearts that Jesus week, our hope, our strength, our cornerstone would be Jesus Christ and him crucified. So go with us now into the week, Lord, and help us to have confidence in you through any trial and storm we may face. Amen.